Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. In this podcast, we pursue faith, seeking understanding. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Both are philosophers and theologians dedicated to engaging the Christian mind in excellence through their teaching and writing. In this episode, we're making a biblical case for the role of reason in Christianity. Welcome. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. Good to be with you. So some of my experiences with small groups in the church, um, in both formal and informal discussions, I have heard some of the most compelling arguments against the life of the mind from scripture itself. So I would really like to talk about those things today, uh, specifically some of those passages that seem to indicate that we shouldn't pursue the life of the mind or that we shouldn't attempt to understand God's ways as they are higher than ours. Uh, What are some initial responses you two have to that? Well, it's always struck me as odd that people would present arguments for uh, being against the use of arguments. (laughs) So there's something suspicious about that. But uh, the other thing that I would say, and I'm curious as to what Stan would say, is that the Christian religion has always placed a high value on the importance of reason. In fact, it is that distinguishing mark that sets Christianity apart from almost any other religion in the world. So uh, one of the great things that that is true of the faith is that we value reasoning, uh, and people who undermine that, I think, are are misunderstanding the entire history of our religion. Hmm. No, it's so true, and it's hard to understand that as well, because Scripture makes such a clear case for the role of reason in our spiritual lives. You know, there's from the Old Testament and New Testament, countless passages that either assume or explicitly state the value of thinking well and loving God with our minds. Uh, We could just start listing them. I think uh, it would take us too long to list them all, but uh, you, you can think about even God's nature, Romans 16, 27, talks about God being the only wise God. He's a God of wisdom, a God of knowledge. Jesus, when he was here incarnate, one of the earliest uh, recordings of him was that he was increasing in wisdom and stature in Luke 2.52. It was very important to him, obviously, uh, as as he was amongst us. Uh, The Lord says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. Let's think together about these things. Uh, Proverbs is full of passages. Consider the ant, you know, Think about what you can observe and from that draw conclusions about how you should live. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a strange objection uh, in light of what seems to me a, a very clear teaching throughout the scriptures. Well, I, I would like to add uh, one point to Stan's uh, statements. So many people say the Bible doesn't start by trying to argue that there's a God. It starts by simply asserting it. And uh, you're you're to take that by faith because there's no <laughs> there's no apologetics or any reasoning that God is there. Uh, it's it's just a statement. 
And I've heard that so many times, but it is really a gross misunderstanding of what is really going on in Genesis. In fact, the opposite is going on, and here's why. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there were almost no atheists around. So the target of reasoning would not be people who didn't believe in God. Instead, the target would be people who believed in false or many gods. And what you have around Israel, among the Canaanites and uh, nations near the, the, the people of God, were religions that believed that every spring they would have to engage in frenzied sexual orgies in order to induce the gods to have intercourse so that their seed would fall to the ground and crops would be uh would, would sprout up anew the, in the in the spring um what genesis 1 says is something that would be laughed at and treated as literally ridiculous and that is that horses come from horses corn stalks come from other corn plants and so this, this issued a test, and the test was this. If our God is the true God, first you will notice that even though we do not engage in these rituals, all we do is plant corn and grapevines and so on, we still have crops because your view of where they come from is false. By the way, if you nations stop engaging in these ritualistic orgies, you will still have crops as well. So you can test who is God, uh, Yahweh or, or Marduk or one of your deities. Mm -hmm. If you stop uh, doing your orgies in the spring and if you continue to have crops, we're right. But if you don't, we're wrong. So there is an evidential test that is offered right from the beginning in the early verses of Genesis 1 that involves reasoning and gathering evidence. But it isn't against atheism. It's against the gods of the nations surrounding Israel. Hmm. In my conversations with people, I've heard two different kinds of objections to the pursuit of the life of the mind as a Christian. One is the person who says, his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And, and they don't necessarily say that they are choosing sloth or choosing to be lazy about it, but they say something like, that's not how I'm going to spend my time because, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do. So why does it matter? And then the second kind of person is harder for me to engage with because it comes from a place where they see it as an act of humility as an act of submission to the, to the will of God to say, I don't know. And he does. And it's, it's, you know, God, when he's talking to Job and he says, well, where were you when I set forth the foundations of the earth? That's the sort of attitude they have is the attitude Job has at the end of God's word to him, which is, oh, never mind. <laughs> I, do, I don't know anything. You're right. So what are some biblical texts to help us move someone or move ourselves from a place where we, we see our lack of intellectual engagement as an act of humility 
to a place of intellectual engagement rooted in humility. Sure. I, I've heard first Corinthians eight, one be quoted in that context, you know, knowledge makes you conceited or puffs you up, but love mm-hmm. edifies. So it's an either or, uh, and JP, I'd love to have you say a th- uh, something about that. I really appreciate the chapter you wrote on the, the, the topic in love your God with all your mind. And you, uh, you address this either or dichotomy, I think really well in that. Could you summarize your thoughts there? Sure. Two points that I would like to make. And the first one is just because you can't know something exhaustively, it doesn't follow that you can't know it genuinely. Hmm. Take, take any person that you know well. Uh, just take my wife. There is so much about her that I cannot know and never will know because I'm so finite and I could focus on her. And we could talk 10 hours a day, and there, I would never run out of things to learn about her. So her ways are above my ways mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that God's are. Uh, and, and the issue is not her finitude compared to God's infinitude. The problem is my finitude. So I can't know any object, even an electron, exhaustively. But it doesn't follow that we can't know God truly. And you see all kinds of passages where study to show thyself approved. And we'll look at more later. But it's just a mistake to say that because God's ways are uh, above ours in that we will never be able to figure all of them out. And anybody who thinks you can is just crazy. It doesn't follow that there aren't a lot of God's ways that we're supposed to know. Uh, if, if, if we weren't supposed to know some of God's ways, why are so many of them revealed to us? So the person who's raising this is making a mistake by confusing total knowledge with genuine knowledge. And because I can't have total knowledge, it, it doesn't follow that I'm not supposed to p- pursue genuine knowledge of God and of truths that are relevant uh, to my walk with him and so on. Now, the other thing having to do with pride, practically everything that we can be good at can be something that generates pride or humility. Uh, So a person who's good at sports can, can use that skill to puff themselves up and make them proud, or it can cause them to be humbled by thinking, how lucky am I that I was given the gift of being good at sports so that I could work hard and cultivate those abilities. I feel so privileged. And I've heard a lot of pro athletes make that kind of statement. The same thing would be true of uh, the ability to sing or whatever it might be. So, There are cases in scripture where knowledge does puff up, just like there are cases of beauty or uh, musical ability or whatever that would puff someone up. And what Paul is addressing in that text is the self-centered use of reason, not the use of reason in and of itself, just like we would never fault somebody for for wanting to cultivate their ability to perform good music. It's only if they were abusing it 
to make themselves better than other people or what have you. When God is speaking to Job, that was what was going on because it was virtually impossible to understand without access to the divine conversation between God and Satan why this was happening to Job and all of his counselors gave him reasons and he was trying to figure out which I think is a legitimate thing to do by the way just as an aside because sometimes we can actually learn things about what's happening bad to us and we can fix them with God's help but in this in Job's case all the thinking in the world wasn't going to do him any good and so he was getting pretty frustrated about the whole thing because he just thought this was pointless and and what God said to him was you don't know anything uh and that was that was a figure of speech there was a lot of things Job knew but your attempt to figure out what I'm doing is coming to a dead end here. And let me show you how little you do know. So Job was engaged in the abuse of reason. But if you look at the Apostle Paul, where Peter says of Paul's writings, some of them are pretty hard to understand. <laughs> and if you look at what he does in the book of Acts, he isn't preaching. He's arguing. He's persuading. So what that proves, and I'll close with this, is that there is a proper use of reason and the pursuit of knowledge, but there is an abuse. The solution is humility, not ignorance. Mm. Yeah, those are some very helpful distinctions. I, I think that often those nuances are just not discussed, and so people end up making some assumptions that aren't, aren't biblical. Uh, but I want to make another distinction and push back uh, in light of uh, a way I've heard this framed. And that is, again, we're, we're talking about this passage in Isaiah that uh, says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And you made the case that it's a, it's a, a difference of degree, that uh, there, there's more to know about him, uh, just like with your wife, Hope, you will never be at the point where we have exhaustive knowledge. But I've heard some say, no, it's not a difference of degree. It's a difference of kind. So God's logic is not our logic. We can't use our ways of thinking to know God's mind or God's will, because it's a different way of even engaging in ideas. So that's where the deeper problem is, in my view. And I've always responded, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, JP, but I've always said, well, you know, if that's true, then we can't trust anything God says to us. In scripture, if he says, I love you, then we aren't allowed to apply the law of non-contradiction and assume that means he doesn't hate me. And, uh, and we really have no way to know anything is true about God if we can't apply those basic laws of logic. Uh, and so my point's been, no, I think God assumes the laws of logic and that he and we share such that when he says something, we can understand what he is saying and know it to be true. Hmm. Your thoughts? Well, I, I completely agree with your view on this. If God's logic is different from our logic, then uh, I could not know anything about God, because if I make an assertion that God is love, then I am assuming that that rules out the contradictory of that, 
namely that it's not the case that God is loving. Right. Or take the very concept of love. Uh, if the concept of love is applied to God is utterly different than the concept of love that we have, then I fall into agnosticism mm -hmm. about any assertion I make about God, because mm -hmm. I would have no clue uh, what it meant to say God is love if there wasn't some point of sameness between divine love and the concept of that and my love when it's at its best and, and what our concept of purified human love. So if you make this break like this objection is, then we fall into utter speechlessness and agnosticism about being able to say or learn anything about God whatsoever. And I would also say that I have no idea what a person means when they say that's human logic instead of divine logic. In my own view, it's all God's logic. In other words, logic is ultimately the way that God's own mind is structured. And so logic begins with God's own divine mind. But he created us in his image with the powers to tap into and use the very same principles of logic that structure his mind in our efforts to reason too. So we are on borrowed capital here. We are actually using the logic that is in God's mind. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I see all the connections in something I know to be true. Because, um, I mean, I know that certain foods are good for me, but I don't know all the different nuances of that, and God does. But still, logic and reasoning, they come from God, not me. I just borrow them or use them, and I use them well sometimes, and I use them poorly sometimes. But it's uh, ultimately divine logic. It's not human logic, whatever that means. Right. That's well said. Mm-hmm. I agree. So the, the pushback I would hear to that is, so are you telling me, JP, that God is bound by something? He can't do whatever he wants. He can't really do anything. How would you respond to that? Sure. Two things. First of all, for God to do something outside the bounds of logic is what is called a pseudo task. Uh, they're not real tasks. Uh, a real task would be God's ability to raise a 5,000-ton object. Now, that's a real task. I can't do it, but God could. Mm -hmm. But now, what if we were to consider the possibility of God raising a 5,000-ton square circle? <laughs> Even God couldn't do that because... The idea of there being a 5,000-ton square circle is a contradiction, and the idea of lifting it, it's a task that is pseudo. It's not real. It couldn't possibly be real. So God is limited by—that's the second point—God is limited by his nature. That is to say that God— acts in keeping with his nature, but doesn't act contrary to his nature. Now, if you want to see a God who is capable of doing anything and is not limited by anything, Allah is that God. Mm. 
because Allah can do any action he wants. And whether it's looked like it would be evil or not, it, 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 it's whatever he does is okay. Not the biblical God, because in Genesis, God is reasoned with, if you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and there are 50 righteous people in there, that's wrong. And what does God do that he says, you know, you're right. I agree. I'm not going to do that. That's a God who limits himself to who he is. He can't help be but who he is. He's kind of stuck with himself, as it were. In other words, God didn't decide one day, I think I'm going to turn myself into God. Mm -hmm. I think I would like to make myself omnipotent. God kind of just found himself with his attributes, and he lives according to them. Hmm. Yeah, again, this is an important distinction is between God being able to do anything and God being able to do anything possible. Mm. In scripture, there are other clear examples of things that God clearly says he cannot do. He says he cannot sin, uh, to your point earlier. Uh, and for that, we're all very thankful. <laughs> uh, God cannot cease to exist. So there are these clear things that I think everybody assumes or grants God can't do. But there's this sense of, well, we want to say God can do anything because we don't want to run afoul of the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And that distinction you've made, JP, is really helpful, I think, to people to say, no, divine sovereignty is God can do anything possible, not anything, if those other things are pseudotasks like sinning or ceasing to exist that aren't even possible. Hmm. Well, and and, and adding to what Stan said, Jordan, um, the medieval thinkers said that there are a lot of things we can do God can't do. For example, I can grow in wisdom and grow in character, but God isn't capable of growing in his character. I can, I can run a hundred yard dash. God can't. Uh, now Jesus could insofar as he was human, but the divine being couldn't run a hundred yard dash. So we can do a lot of things God can't do, but the only reason we can do them and he can't is that he's already accomplished it. In other words, the, our ability to do these things is because we're limited. God can't grow in knowledge because he's already got it all. And he can't run a hundred yard dash because he's already at the finish line. <laughs> I mean, he ex he's fully present everywhere. So it's not like he needs to go from here to over there to be there. He's there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, this is just a, a, a real confusion. And I like the way Stan put it. So when we make the first statement, we're saying we can do anything that's within the bounds of being logically possible and consistent with his own nature. Hmm. Right. He can't swear by a name greater than himself, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, and to your point about learning being something that uh, we can do and God can't do. Uh, I love the way Proverbs 25, two puts it. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of Kings to search out a matter. Ooh. In fact, Danny McCain, founder of Global Scholars, always starts one of uh, his uh, his intro classes uh, in theology by saying, you can do something God even himself can't do. And the students, of course, step back and say, no, how could that be possible? And he says, you can learn. <laughs> and uh, that's a valuable thing. And you get a chance to do this here in this class. And it's something God has given you that is a glory and enjoy it. And that is so refreshing, I think, when we uh, realize that it's a gift from God to be able to learn, even though it's not something that he can enjoy because he knows all things. Hmm. Good, good. Excellent. Excellent. 
it, it reminds me a bit I, as I imagine God watching us learn. It would be like watching a child open a Christmas present. He knows what it is. Mm. He knows what they're going to unwrap. He knows what they're about to find out or, you know, introducing someone to your favorite music. And it's almost like experiencing it for the first time again to watch somebody enjoy it. So to think about the joy it may even bring God to watch us learn and grow in wisdom is, is pretty cool. Mm. Very good point. Mm-hmm. Very good point. Mm. Okay. So I think we, we've talked about the intellectual objections here. Uh, now I'm curious how you would answer some of the lifestyle objections. Things like, where do I start? I don't have time to read scripture. I don't understand scripture. I find it difficult. I simply don't have the capacity for learning, or I believe I don't have the capacity for that kind of learning. I leave that to other people. What would you say about those things? You've asked three questions. The first one is, I don't have time. The second one is, I don't have the capacity. And the third one is, that's something, isn't it, that I should leave to other people? Very quickly, I don't have time. I would say that you don't have time not to, because this is one of the most important things in life, is to be a grower. And that growing includes, but goes beyond learning. The more that you learn, the more you will be able to do as a Christian and and understand and and apply to your life. There are ways that you can find to do a learning that you do while you're doing other things, like listening to books on tape while you're in the car. Uh, The second thing is that I don't have the capacity to do it. You know, most people who think that have a poor assessment of their capacities because if they don't have the capacity, they still have the capacity to develop the capacity. Like, uh, I don't have the capacity to speak Russian, but I have the capacity to develop that capacity if I will begin to go to Russian classes. So a lot of people look at themselves and compare themselves to other people and say, well, I'm not like that person. I just don't have the ability. And my question is always, how do you know that? How do you know that you can't develop that ability if you try a little bit more? Maybe without trying, you've used that as an excuse not to even try. But I would say to you, you could do more than you think give it a shot. But now that leads to my the, the third issue. And that is that, gosh, there are other people around that are so much better than this than I am. Shouldn't I leave it to them? And the answer is yes and no. Uh, the yes answer is it's a body of Christ and we all have different roles. And some people are called to be thinkers and scholars. And people without those callings and giftings aren't supposed to be as good as they are because they're not supposed to be devoting as much time to it as they do. They should be devoting that time because that's their calling. But uh, it doesn't follow that we shouldn't all be a little better at this than we are. So for example, I don't have the gift of mercy or hospitality. Uh, My wife has those gifts, but I have learned ways to be more hospitable from her 
even though I'll never be able to match her because that's not my gifting. But it doesn't mean I can just sit around and say, well, when we have people over to serve them, I'll be a jerk. So uh, everybody has the privilege of developing their capacities to know and learn. But don't compare yourself to someone in the body of Christ who you rightly recognize is called to do that. It's not a fair comparison. Hmm. Stan, do you, what do you think about that? I'd add that these practical objections are inadequate because Scripture is crystal clear that that ought not be our posture as believers. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. He wants us to be in all ways pursuing him, including in our intellectual life. So that's just a clear statement by Jesus about what the ultimate goal of life is, and it includes growing in our love and knowledge of God. Furthermore, in 1 Peter 3.15, we're told clearly that if anybody asks us or has questions about the faith and isn't sure, we ought to be able to give them a reason, a defense, uh, to give evidences and arguments as to why these things are true. And so to take that view, you just have to go contrary to so many clear teachings of Scripture that make it plain that part of our walk with Christ in ministry involves our growing knowledge of the truths of the faith. We will return to the show in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. As a listener to this podcast, you understand the importance of ideas. Right now, the next generation of leaders in universities around the world are being taught ideas that will shape their values and how they lead. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to teach and model biblical truths and values to help students learn to think Christianly. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn more. And now back to the show. Something both of you touched on is if we are looking to other people to be the ones who love the Lord with all their mind. I'll love the Lord with all my heart. You love the Lord with all your mind because your mind is better at it. That reminds me of first Corinthians one, where they're talking about, you know, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with John Piper, I'm with Timothy Keller. You know, we are asking these teachers to decide these things for us and then just trusting kind of blindly sometimes those people to have better reason than we do. I think there, you know, when we stand before the judgment seat, I will not be able to say, well, uh, I just kind of did whatever Timothy Keller told me to do, or I just did whatever JP Moreland told me to do. (laughs) Um, Be careful there. Right, right. So I, I think you know, as we're, we're talking about worldly wisdom or things like that, I think that's what scripture is warning us against. Well, let, let me take a page from where you went, 1 Corinthians 1, because uh, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says that I did not come to you in cleverness of speech mm-hmm. when I preached the gospel of Christ. And in fact, uh, he sort of bookends his whole discussion about worldly wisdom. Uh, by beginning with verse 17, but in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, my message and my preaching 
were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit with power. Now, you have to understand that in Paul's day, there were itinerant preachers who traveled, and they were gifted. They were not Christians. They were just public speakers and orators who were gifted at rhetoric. In fact, when I took a preaching class at Dallas Seminary, we began by reading how to prepare a speech or a talk from the ancient Roman and Greek orators of Paul's day, because they were they did unbelievably advanced work on crafting and using hand gestures and pausing and tone of voice. It's unbelievable uh, what they learned about how to persuade people giving a talk. And you could pay them to persuade an audience on either side of an issue. You paid them for whichever issue you wanted them to persuade, and they do it. Now, when Paul says, I didn't come to you like that, he doesn't mean I didn't come with reasonable arguments. I'll come back to that in a minute. He meant, I did not present myself to you as a Greek or a Roman rhetorician or orator. Because in the uh, secular literature of that time, when they described these rhetoricians, they talked about learning how to bring persuasive words of wisdom and cleverness of speech. And Paul actually uses those phrases that were used by the rhetoricians to say, I was not like one of those guys. I didn't come to you and try to persuade you by my speaking abilities, by the giftedness of my oration. But he did come, although this, this particular passage doesn't tell us this, uh, he did come presenting arguments and using rational uh, argumentation. You see that, for example, in, in later in 1 Corinthians 15, where he provides evidence for the resurrection by appealing to eyewitnesses that were still around when, when Paul is writing this to them. In the book of Acts, I challenge our, our viewers to look at Acts 14, Acts 17, uh, Acts 19 and 20, where Paul set up the school of Tyrannus. And you're going to find that all throughout the book of Acts, he engages in, and the Greek word there is he dialogizomide, or argumentatively persuaded. He used arguments and reasoning all the time. So then what he's talking about in here is coming as a person who is relying on orative abilities or the abilities as a speaker. Now, the other thing I'll say quickly is when he says that the gospel is foolishness, this was foolish to the pride mm. because the idea of a Jewish contractor who worked with his hands being executed by Roman crucifixion, and if you will believe in him, you will be with God forever. It's, that, that may absolutely, that was just, why would anybody want to stoop so loaded to, to buy into something like that? It wasn't that it wasn't capable of being backed by evidence. Paul does that in 1 Corinthians 15. And in the book of Acts, this was rather the idea that by pure reason, the Greeks could not figure out what God was doing in history. Because the pure philosophy can't tell you that. They needed to hear what he had done. And what he did was backed by evidence in 1 Corinthians 15. But for right now, what I'm going to tell you he did, 
probably is going to be hard for you to choke down because it's going to sound like it's pre- it's going to be an offense to your ability to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. <sighs> you have to harmonize 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 with the book of Acts of 1 Corinthians 15, and that's the best way to do it. An offense to your ability to pull your own self up by your bootstraps. That is an excellent word. I'm struck so often in scripture at how little has changed. Isn't that amazing? Stan, what are your thoughts here? JP's point about harmonizing these passages of scripture is so important. When we try to interpret scripture, we want scripture to help interpret other scripture so that we have really the mind of God and don't pull one thing out of context. You know, I've always been so... Uh, so helped by what I'd say is probably the most important passage on spiritual formation in uh, Romans 12 two, right? Where God says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Cause that's how you will prove what the will of God is. That's how you'll live according to uh, God's desire and enjoy his presence by renewing your mind. There's a lot of things Paul could have said there. But it's the mind he focuses on because that's what drives action. That's how we develop understanding. That's what makes us into the type of people we are. And so that, along with the passages all through the Old Testament that uh, are assuming a commitment to ideas and the life of the mind, I'm thinking of the Oracle to the Nations in Amos chapters 1 and 2, right? where Amos the prophet appeals to their natural ability to reason and understand God's moral law, even though they don't have the writings of the prophets. It's just assumed. And sometimes without having an eye to see, one might miss these things in scripture, but they are everywhere. Uh, You think about Daniel Mm -hmm. and his cohort uh, of of, uh, Hebrew slaves who are praised because they studied and understood better than anyone else the issues of the day. And uh, that was serious intellectual work, the equivalent of a PhD. Uh, and as a result, God used that ability they developed, that, the, that knowledge, to play a very important role in his redemptive history. That would not have happened had they not applied their minds, thought well about things, learned what they needed to learn, And valued these things. So I could go on and on, Mm -hmm. but the whole council of scripture seems to be clear that God not only wants us to love him with our mind, but if we don't, we won't have a flourishing spiritual life, nor a flourishing ministry to others. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to miss one thing that Stan said that uh, just as it's easy to pass over, but it was really important. Stan made the point that in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he, he says to be transformed by the renewing of, the, of your mind, but there were a lot of other things he could have said. Uh, he could have said, be transformed by the sincerity and passion of your worship. Uh, be transformed by the time you spend in prayer uh, or, or by other things. And we all would recognize that there are several facets to transformation, and those would all be things that would be transformative. But like it or not, as I understand these two verses, 
they are the most important things Paul ever said in any of his writings on spiritual transformation and growth. Now, he said a lot of other things, but if I had to narrow it down, this would be the passage I'd pick if I had to pick one. <laughs> and what I always find interesting is this starts with the, the transformation of the mind. And obviously, in the context, what he's saying is, don't think like people who think about life and right and wrong in the world and God according to the way your culture thinks. Uh, that is contrary to God's word. Now, the culture sometimes is right, but he's saying, don't let yourself look at things and think mm -hmm. that way. Well, how are you going to keep from doing that? Well, you've got to be transformed by keeping your mind renewed from that kind of rut of thinking. How do you do that? By reading the word and related things, theological works, Christian books on various subjects that extend the word and so on. But Stan's point is so spot on because Paul, like it or not, picked that to be at the center, the core or foundation of spiritual transformation. Mm -hmm. So now let me, let me push back. Uh, obviously, we're of the same mind on this, but a counter argument can be offered that, yes, the mind is important, but the mind is not what we develop. It's what the spirit develops in us. And I'll give you three passages that are often used to support this idea that it's more of a passive reception of God's mind than an active engagement of our cognitive faculties. First uh, Corinthians two fourteen and 15, but a natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So it's through the spirit that you gain knowledge, not your own effort. Secondly, John 14, 26, Jesus speaking, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I said to you. And so it's the Spirit who's going to give you this knowledge, not your own effort or work. And third, 1 John 2, 27, uh, and as for you, the anointing which you receive from him remains in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you remain in him. Again, a spirit's activity, teaching you, not you working, having human teachers instructing you and so on and so forth. How do you answer those passages and that objection? Right, good. Uh, well, those passages have got to be being misunderstood before we even look at the details, because we are told elsewhere, show thyself approved, uh, handling mm -hmm. accurately the word of truth, study to show thyself approved. When Ezekiel comes back, the first thing he does is devote himself to study. Psalm 119 is filled with exhortations to memorize and study and learn the word of God. Luke says at the beginning of his gospel that he investigated everything carefully from the beginning so that they might know the exact truth. That meant he, he, he did his research in writing his gospel, and we could go on and on. So there are so many examples that run contrary to the way these passages are being interpreted that we might want to know, is there another way to understand them that harmonizes these with the rest of the word? And it's not hard to find them. I did a detailed study of the First Corinthians text that you mentioned, there, there are two Greek words that could have been used for accept. And the word that is used is to embrace something you already understand. 
So it's like, you know this, now accept, now embrace it. So that the, the word is talking about resisting, not knowing. In fact, in order to accept, you have to already know, or you can't accept, because the presupposition is that you are to accept this now that you know what it is and know that it's true. Don't keep resisting. Now, it says they can't be understood because they're spiritually appraised. The term understood there is not uh, the typical word to know. It, it, it is more typically used to enter into. It's very much like Adam knew his wife Eve. So the, the, the Hebrew concept of understand that is intended by that word isn't just to know about or to have knowledge of, but it's to embrace and enter in and accept it. And the point of this is that without the Spirit of God helping you, it's not that you can't know it cognitively, you'll resist it. You will not embrace it and apply it to yourself. You will continue to treat it at arm's length. Now, if we go over to the passage in John, you have to understand that sometimes a scriptural passage is addressing a historical situation, but it applies equally to us, like uh, the commands of uh, Israel to, to move into the land that they were promised. Now, there's also something in there about loving the Lord your God and passing on his teachings. Now, that applies directly to me because that is not addressed to Israel insofar as they were about to enter the land. That's addressed to them as God's people, and I share that with them. But I'm not trying to enter a land that only applied to them. In the passage in John 15, it is very, very clear, if you study it carefully, that this passage is being addressed to the 12. It is not addressed, for the most part, to us. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't things that are said to the 12, only simply insofar as they're Jesus' followers, and that would apply equally to us. So there's a lot in there that applies directly to us, not indirectly. But there's some of it that was meant specifically for them. And that promise that the Spirit would teach and lead them is a promise of inspiration, not illumination. And so the promise is that when you are uh, coming to tell people of my teachings and what I did and writing them down, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will bring to your mind the things that I taught. So that's the point, is that the 12, we're going to receive the Spirit's help in remembering what Jesus said. Now, when you come to the passage in, in 1 John, and you have no one, no need of anyone to teach you, if that's true, why would John have to teach them that? Hmm. If, if they really did not need anyone to teach them, then they would intuitively know that without anybody saying a thing. But John had to teach them that. <laughs> now, what, what sense does that make? Plus, John does a lot of teaching in his gospel and in his three epistles. If he really means that you don't need anyone to teach you, he is contradicting his own assertions by his entire lifestyle and what he did. I can't actually believe that's true. 
what he's doing is he's dealing with a time in the church toward the end of the apostolic era when false teachers were beginning to creep into the church. And you can look at Jude, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 2nd Peter, 1st Peter, and uh, you can begin to see in some of these later epistles evidence that there were these false teachers creeping into the church in kind of record numbers. And they were claiming to have special knowledge about God. And you would have to listen to them before you could know that. And what Peter is saying, if anybody comes along and tells you that they're the only one that can teach you something because they have the special insight, don't listen to them. You don't need any, you don't need anybody to teach you what you already know, because you had the word given to you handed to you by apostolic authority, and you have that to listen and study. Don't listen to other people who are trying to take you astray. So this is addressed in context to false teachers, not to the need for teaching altogether. Hmm. Okay, so here, here would be some pushback to that in Colossians 2.8. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. Well, the Greek construction there very clearly ties vain and empty together. My translation says, don't be led astray by vain and empty philosophy. It would be like me saying to you, don't you dare eat the spoiled food in the refrigerator. That doesn't mean you shouldn't eat food. It Mm. means you shouldn't eat the spoiled food. And what he's saying is, don't be sucked into vain and empty philosophy. It isn't saying don't listen to philosophy at all. And again, if it meant that, Paul himself is denying that, because if you look at his speech in Acts 17, he cites two specific uh, Greek philosophers and poets. And in Colossians chapter one, he talks about the pleroma or fullness of God. And that was a concept that came from a form of Gnosticism that was in Corinth, where they thought God was pure spirit and the earth was evil matter, Mm. and God could therefore not do anything in the world, or he'd stain himself with evil. So there was a hierarchy of ranked angels between God and the earth, and the lower you got, the more physical these beings became. So God only interacted with the angels that were 99% spirit and only 1% matter. And finally, you get down the chain till you get to those uh, uh, angelic beings that are 99% material. That whole hierarchy of angels mediated between God and the earth. It kept him from having to get stained. And that was called the fullness or the pleroma. Mm. And what, what Paul says is, Jesus was the pleroma of God. He was the mediator, not the highly ranking orders of angels from pure spirit to material. Jesus is the mediator. Well, before Paul could make that point, he had to study their philosophers. And he took a page from their writings and applied it in a Christian context. So he is warning against 
being drawn into, not even not reading. Sometimes we have to read, like Paul did, what the Gnostics were saying in order to refute it. So it's not that you don't read this stuff. It's that you don't get drawn into vain philosophy, not that you don't read philosophy whatsoever. Hmm. So here's a related objection. I am thinking of some of my brothers and sisters, though, who would push back at least when talking about engaging non-believers. And again, to somewhat the point of the first Corinthians two passage in the natural person that the doctrine of total depravity means that our minds are such that they cannot understand anything that is a spiritual truth. And so we ought not to look to and engage in reasoned dialogue and thinking about these kind of issues with the unbeliever. I've got some thoughts on that, but I'd love to hear yours, JP. Well, you can't light a match without striking it. But if you don't also have oxygen there, you can strike it until it's blue in the face and it's not going to light. Similarly, a person can't get converted without the Holy Spirit lighting him up. But it doesn't follow that there doesn't have to be oxygen present, that is, the cooperative co-laborship of humans persuading someone just because it's the striking that lights the match it doesn't mean oxygen's irrelevant in fact it's necessary and just because it's the spirit who persuades it doesn't mean human agency like oxygen doesn't need to be present as well if we do say it's not needed then paul again contradicts this all throughout the book of acts Mm -hmm. indeed some liberal scholars who take the interpretation that you're Uh, pushing as a devil's advocate, uh, say that Paul, uh, when he gave the speech in Acts 17, got nailed, and he couldn't handle the the criticism he got, Mm. so he backed off of it, he's tucked his tail between his legs, and he says, okay, I learned my lesson, I'm not going to reason anymore like I did with those folks on Mars Hill, I'm going to stick to the foolishness of the cross, and he changed his mind in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, I don't believe that. I think they're consistent. Hmm. Well, he states as much in Second Corinthians ten five. You know, we destroy arguments and every lofty speculation raised up against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, uh, perfect. Certainly didn't back off, but affirmed it and challenged the Corinthian believers to do the same. Excellent. I think also there's a, I don't know if I want to say misunderstanding, but a different understanding of what is meant by total depravity that drives this objection. Uh, Clearly scripture says that we are all fallen. Uh, Every dimension of our being is affected by the fall, every relationship we have, everything. And so there is a totality in that sense. I'd call it an extensive totality. It extends to every part of our being, including our mind. I don't think the doctrine of total depravity entails an intensive notion of depravity such that every dimension of our being is fallen to the extent where it has no capacity whatsoever anymore to do what it was created to do. So the mind has no capacity to think clearly. The emotions have no capacity to to experience true love or remorse, et cetera. The will has no capacity to make decisions. Uh, but they're still affected by the fall uh, in the extensive sense. 
What do you think about that nuance? I completely agree. The fall doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be in terms of our ability to use our mind or emotions. They're not as messed up as they could be. They could be worse, but all of us is messed up. Doesn't mean they're not capable of being used. It just means that we got to be careful against distortions. The other thing is that I think people who make that objection stand say that we're dead in trespasses and sins, but the word dead, they take kind of more literally that there's no ability in us at all, Mm. like a corpse, a corpse, you don't reason with a corpse, but that's a misunderstanding of dead because I think death in scripture means separated. It doesn't mean annihilated or uh, completely uh, incapable of anything. Mm -hmm. So when Adam and Eve died, they were separated from God, but they didn't cease to exist or anything like that. Hmm. So let's talk about some resources for our listeners here. This is a huge conversation where we're hoping that we have been helpful in maybe tipping the scale toward uh, your participation in the life of the mind. Where do we start? How do we begin to evaluate these philosophies if this is something new to us, if our tradition hasn't given us these tools? Well, I'm going to jump in so I can toot JP's horn a bit. This book here, uh, Love Your God With All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul, I think is a tour de force on these issues. Uh, It not only addresses the objections we've talked about, but goes on to talk a lot about how as we learn to obey the greatest commandment, we really do flourish in our, in our walk with God and our ministry. So that's the place I'd say to start and JP in the index or the uh, appendix, you've listed a lot of other resources from there that are really helpful too. Yeah, I have nothing to add. Thank you, Stan. Appreciate that. I believe that book is in its second edition. Yes. And there are resources for groups too. Is that correct? That's right. Great. Well, those we will link in the show notes. Uh, Anything else, Dan, you'd like to add? I would just add that I've tried to curate and collate resources that I found helpful on my website that uh, listeners might might find helpful. Mm-hmm. And and I can't fail to mention JP's great website as well, which is one of them that I uh, have listed on mine that has has a lot of his work and thoughts on these things. Wonderful. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed, as well as share your thoughts to keep the conversation going. If you found this episode helpful, please help spread the word by leaving your review on your preferred podcast platform and share this podcast with others who may enjoy the conversation. Be sure to check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith, to help Christian students thrive during their university years. Visit www.collegefaith.net. And finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, at global-scholars.org to help equip Christian professors to share God's truth and grace with their students and colleagues. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank encouraging you to think Christianly.